There have long been rumors of unmarked graves at schools. And on May 27, 2021, the remains of 200 children were found buried on the site of the Kamloops Residential School. According to Mary Ellen Turpel Lafon, Director of the Indian Residential School History and Dialogue Center at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was set up in 2008 to find out what happened in residential schools was told 50 deaths occurred at the Kamloops Institution. She said massive ongoing problems with historical records, including those held by certain Catholic entities that they will not release, have made it very hard to understand accurately what happened. The discovery confirms what community survivors have said for years, that many children went to the school and never returned. Federal agents often moved children around, so it is possible some of those found are from other First Nation communities. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission said estimates of 4,100 children died at the schools based on death records, but has said that the true total is likely much higher. Large numbers of Indigenous children who were forcibly sent to residential schools never returned home. Archbishop J. Michael Miller of the Catholic Church, the Vancouver Archdiocese, said in a statement, The pain that such news causes reminds us of our ongoing need to bring to light every tragic situation that occurred in residential schools run by the church. The passage of time does not erase the suffering. In 2015, the Archbishop issued a letter repeating the Archdiocese's apology for the role the church played in the federal government's residential school policy. But in 2018, Pope Francis rejected a direct appeal for an apology from the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. After carefully considering the request and an extensive dialogue with the bishops of Canada, he felt that he could not personally respond. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission concluded in 2015 that residential schools were a program of cultural genocide. The use of indigenous languages was banned at the schools, sometimes through the use of violence, as were indigenous cultural practices. The Commission found evidence of neglect and maltreatment spanning decades at Kamloops. In 1918, a government official who inspected the school reported his suspicion that the vitality of the children is not sufficiently sustained from a lack of nutritious food. So far, 215 children, the graves of 215 children, were found at Kamloops Indian Residential School, at Miravel Indian Residential School by the Kawasis First Nation in Saskatchewan, east of Regina. 751 unmarked graves in the Catholic Cemetery near the former school. St. Eugene's Mission School near Cranbrook, B.C. They found 182 unmarked graves using ground-penetrating radar. Which brings us to the topic today. Hi, our guest today is Rariki. Hi, Rariki. How are you? Yeah, great, Walter. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm happy that you're here, especially broadcasting out of the UK. That's that's good. The mother, the motherland, the mother country. You know, right? And and, Di- and Diane, yeah, we're here to talk about the residential schools. Uh, thanks for uh, for showing up and coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. Always appreciate coming around. Right. You want to get the story out there? That's for sure. Um, so for people who, who didn't know, 
um, residential schools were were a thing from the 1600s till 2000 and something, Diane. I the the last publicly funded one was 1997, and none of it ranking in lit. Right. So that was the last publicly funded one. Right, and in 1880, the federal government took over funding until um, they were over. You have family that were involved with residential schools, correct? I certainly do. My mother, my well, my grandparents, my mother, my uncles, cousins. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, could you tell us a little bit about what your mom went through, perhaps? Maybe that's closest to home. Closest to home. Uh, well, my mother and my uncles. Uh, when when they uh, when they took the children from the community of Tackle Lake, where I am right now, um, currently, uh, they would come down either by an airplane, one of those little app walks airplanes, I call them, they're little tiny little things. Mm -hmm. They would take the children in those planes or they would take them by barge. My mother and her siblings went by barge and that was an overnight trip. They would actually land on where my grandparents' house used to be. They used to land right in front of there and they'd load up the children and it would be an overnight trip. Um, barge trip from Tackle Landing to Fort St. James, where the Indian agent would come and collect them and take them to the Jack School. These were five and six year olds, were they, or anybody? Who was... They were all of all ages. They were young, like school age. And um, so, you, if you were of age of school, you were going. Yeah. You were either going by the airplane or you're going by the barge. Did the parents, um, parents of these children, did they? think this was a good thing that they were going to get a good education and a positive or uh, the parents were told that if they did not release their child to attend the residential schools they themselves would be jailed and that would be that was one of the things that my grandfather he he tried to fight to keep my mom and her siblings and was told straight up that if you fight this you will be going to jail so all, all, all these kids in, in the village were, were taken to an Indian agent and then brought to a school or separated? Were they together at least? Or? No. They, what they did was they separated uh, boys from girls, so all the siblings were all separated. Uh, you weren't uh, allowed to talk in your, your mother tongue, so carrier for us it would be carrier Indian. Mm -hmm. You weren't allowed to talk in your mother tongue. Um, you weren't allowed to do anything, but it, the, the first thing that they did was they removed everything that was part of you. They would cut your hair, like uh, they would cut your hair, they would delouse you because, you know, we, we were back then, you know, savages and un unclean. Uh, but uh, yeah, they would uh, take you in, take every, all your belongings, everything that you took with you, uh, and your clothing, everything, and um, delouse you, and you'd be separated into girls' dormitories and boys' dormitories. And you, you might have caught glimpses of your sibling from across the yard, but there was no interaction. Right. What was, um, did your mom talk about her first night there at all? Uh, my mom does very, talks about it very little because it, it does bring back a lot of trauma for her. Mm -hmm. um, she, and, and when she does talk about it, it is all in the third person. Everything happened to somebody else, not her. 
and but uh but yeah she uh she was you know you're you're a young child and you're taken away from your family you don't know the language because the only language you know is your mother tongue and you're now no longer allowed to speak it your your number basically and if you were to speak your language you were beaten abused you're separated from your siblings so you had no no form of support i i could not even imagine you know yeah, <laughs> I don't think I couldn't. I couldn't imagine as a, as an older child, never mind a young one. Right, I don't think most Canadians could imagine it. Or other people, yeah. you know. Um, so she's in the school, and she had other siblings that she couldn't contact at the school. You, Is that correct? You weren't allowed. To, you weren't allowed to social interact with them. Right. Because you know that that would just continue on your your indigenous ways if you still had contact with your siblings because you would probably talk to them in your language you would probably do whatever ceremonies that you still did you right. which and those were absolutely forbidden they were taking away the social bonds yes and the cultural identity of these children right yeah they, they were broken down and to be rebuilt mm -hmm. in assimilation uh, well rebuild I, I mean, once you come out of a school like that, there must be a, almost a PTSD or... Uh, you see a lot of that, um, and a lot of it comes out in uh, the behaviors um, um, when they return home, because when they return home, they are no longer, like they're a stranger. My mom was a stranger when she came back to community. Uh, my grandparents had to reteach her her language. They had to reteach her the cultural ways, and um, to the her you know her friends and whatnot that she had prior to. They were all uh, strangers to each other now. Were they tagged so, as different? These children that returned home, you know, not, well, not not indigenous and not white. Are they? You're they you're an outsider though? when you come back. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 I know the answer to this, but the government didn't provide any um, funding for these children or anything to help them. Uh, the the schools were un underfunded, like, the, and that's uh, one of the reasons why uh, why the, the churches were the ones to take it over. Right. And uh, the the one that my mom ran or ran the one that my mom was in was uh, run by Catholic school um, Catholic religion. Um, there were other ones, uh, whatever the uh, the dominant uh, religion in the area. Those were the ones that uh, ran the school. Mm -hmm. So in my mom's case, it was Catholic, and uh, they were all under underfunded. The students had to uh, work the land themselves for the foods and. Uh, take care of whatever animals that they had there for. And uh, the big thing to note there was uh, even though those children took care of like the harvest, the, you know, the planting, the harvest and all that, they didn't get to eat that. Oh. So they got, you know, the bare minimum just to keep them alive, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the big meals that the uh, priests and the teachers and the nuns had. The only time they would have those was when the Indian agent came and to inspect the school to make sure the students were being taken care of properly. That was the only time that they got to see those kinds of foods that they were actually the ones growing and creating. What, was your mom allowed to return home? 
once once in a while? Uh, <laughs> when she when she first uh, left the school, she came home. But uh, when uh, she married my dad, she was not allowed to come home. Well, I, I meant at Christmas time or something like that. Oh, sorry. Only um, for Christmas breaks, the parents had to go and collect the children. They used their own money to collect the children, and that was considered a privilege to the families to have their kids home. Uh, and uh, if the parents didn't have the money to collect the children or bring them back even. If they didn't bring them back on time, they would lose that privilege of having their child come home for any of the holidays. Wow. So she was able to, but still, it was a hardship to go pick up your child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. I, I can't imagine uh, spending a couple of years in the school and then going home for Christmas. I mean, yeah. especially at that young age, probably have no yeah. clue. So, yeah, it, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's not something that she actually talks about. Like she, and when she does talk, it's, it's a third person. Right. That, I'll, so. I'll get back to that in a, in, a, in a second. But when, when the grave graveyards and Kamloops were discovered, were you, mm -hmm. did you talk to your mom about that? How did, did she, uh, she have flashbacks or anything or? When when uh, they discovered those graves and when it started being uh, advertised or shown on TV, um, she, like many other elders, became super quiet. They um, and you could see the the trauma building up in their eyes again, and just by the actions. And she would be glued to the TV, and but super quiet. She wouldn't talk about it, but she was she was super quiet. You could just see that it's all bringing back because um one of the things that uh my uncles used to talk about was that because the burials themselves and the bodies were not a surprise to us i don't believe there's any aboriginal in canada that this came as a surprise to the reason being is growing up we would hear those stories about uh children having to bury their you know their their classmates and that they had they'd have to dig the holes my uncles were one of these small children that used to do that they used to dig the holes and bury those children and they sadly also had to dig them up when those bodies were moved they don't know where they were moved to but they uh so knowing that and knowing how how this has brought up more trauma for them it's it's quite devastating again. So, I, I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Ricky, if you have any questions, you go ahead, my friend. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 great to see you again, Diane. Um, we've we've had a couple of um, real great uh, conversations before with uh, with the presentations that you do, and um, my interest in um, in uh, talking to you, I. I come from an indigenous background as well so similar similar sort of uh, uh, activities that um, you know you have these uh, um, colonial particularly anglo-saxon colonial governments and they tend to have the a similar um, similar attributes as far as the way they deal with indigenous cultures so I was really you know obviously you know in your heart you feel the pain of of your peoples but also there's the the questions around how it's been done 
and how it's been continuously um, propagated as a state system of genocide. So, you know, I'm I'm looking at your experiences, First Nations and Canada, and then that's transferable around the world. Um, but it's also really interesting because um, as opposed to perhaps your cousins in, in uh, the United States, you, you're actually a more sizable part, you know, proportion of the Canadian population and you probably have a lot more, um, I wouldn't say political power, but you have a lot more um, uh, ability to, to impact the, the broader sort of community in, in Canada now than you did or that um, sort of American, uh, US American, I should say, um, tribes have to influence their, their situation. So a lot of the things that I'm, I'm sort of wanting to talk to you about um, today is around that sort of system of where you are now and um, post the, the suffering and the, and the actual dealing with the problems that um, obviously, you know, this is three, four centuries of oppression, but where are you now? And I know you're doing quite a lot of work inside your own uh, nation as far as um, creating that, but I also wanted to get a, a few um, ideas around where, you know, where, where you're not only your particular First Nation, but um, Native Americans across Canada or Native Canadians across Canada um, can take take forward and, and what you need to do as a movement and as a um, political entity inside the nation of Canada, how, how can you, you know, sort of ensure that your culture isn't, you know, the, the effectively these residential schools are part of a policy of genocide against your peoples. How can you as the, as a, um, you know, 50 or 100 different nations across Canada, how, how can you um, ensure that each of your cultures um, exist and continue to exist and how can you grow and thrive in the future? Because I think that's, that's something that is clear from all the information that's been coming out lately, but also the, 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 the memory of, of your peoples um, is that, you know, you've, you still exist. How, how do you make sure that that um, goes forward? Uh, maybe, well, loaded maybe, question. Yeah, a loaded question. question. Sorry, Dave. Thank you to ask it often. <laughs> maybe for the listeners sit at up home, for this one. Uh, I'll uh, just remind them there was 150,000 First Nation Inuit and Métis children that attended these schools. So yeah. that was a lot um, of people through the years. And to your question um, about political power, Ricky, um, if it wasn't for the Indigenous vote, I don't think Justin Trudeau would have been Prime Minister. Probably not, right. I'm guessing. So, but it's a great question, Diane. I look forward to the answer, my dear. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even sure how to answer that. Uh, what, what I will start with is uh, the genocide piece. I will start with that because um, one of the things, and, I, and this is uh, very near and dear to me because it's, it's actually happening to my grandkids right now, is... Um, the system that they put in place, the Indian Act, even with their recent revision, uh, where my mother lost her status when she married my dad, who was a white man, my Caucasian, uh, she was reinstated, which means that I 
was uh, um, upgraded because what happened was uh, the Indian blood stopped with me. And uh, with her reinstatement and reassessment, the Indian blood now stops with my, my children. It doesn't carry on to my grandchildren. So they're effective. They are still continuing on their genocide. Like my, my grandkids are not going to be considered status. They're not going to be considered Indians. They're going to be non-status. And so basically it stops with my children and anybody else who's in my situation. Um, now, any other culture, you have a long line of heritage. Like if you're Ukrainian, if you're practicing the Ukrainian way, they're not going to say you're not. But if you're First Nations or Aboriginal or Indigenous, whichever way you want to call us, regardless of whether you are practicing your cultural, your heritage, your traditions, there's that card that says that you're indigenous, that you're Indian, and it stops at a certain point. So they're effectively, they are going to continue on with that genocide, whether we like it or not. So what can we do about that? Uh, it all depends on, uh, on uh, if you're a custom ban, you can bring in all these, all these children and work around the uh, custom adoption portion. But a lot of them, uh, a lot of, there aren't very many of those left. And uh, so unless you continuously marry only Aboriginals, even if you're going to live the Aboriginal way, you're just like your children, you're, we, we are effectively going to die off eventually. So. Is this, uh, is this coming from the government or is it coming from the separate tribes or nations? Uh, what the? Uh, the rules about the blood. Uh, some back in back east do have the uh, the, the blood rule, right. where if you marry outside their that community, like outside their uh, their uh, their race, mm -hmm. you're you're out, you're done. But the uh, the blood rule is federal federal government. So and did they did they uh, did the federal government? Um, put that in as their uh, their criteria with treaties and via that way, or is it federal law that they That's, can change? It's it, They can change it. It's all part of the Indian Act, and they've revised the Indian Act to reinstate my mother. Like back in the day, they used to, if you were a Caucasian woman and you married a First Nation man, you would become status. Now, if you were a, or a female indigenous woman and you married a white guy or a Caucasian man, you lost your status. And, and that would be, that was my mom's case. And that was, that's in the, in the Indian Act itself. And then they revamped that uh, Bill C-31, which gave the female indigenous women back their status. But even though their children were, uh, you know, lived the traditional ways and, you know, did the traditional cultural activities and stuff. They're, everything stopped with them. And, and like I said, that's where I'm at right now is, is my kids are with this Bill C-31. My kids can become status. 
my son actually is 34 years old and he just became a status Indian because he was allowed to before. But his daughter is not allowed. She'll never, she won't be considered an Indian in any way, shape or form unless they revamp that uh, to acknowledge that, you know, she's First Nations as well. Thoroughly patriarchal system. Yes, it it still is. Right, and and you would figure that would be changed, or could be changed, or should be changed. In a, well, in a world of equality, that we well we preach equality and uh, yeah. fairness. If you're a First Nation, that doesn't apply, in my opinion. Yeah, it it does seem that the federal government has not really. The revision seems to just be playing around on the corners. It doesn't seem to have actually gone back to the core principles of self-determination for your for your tribes and um and your nations you know there's no it's still not showing any respect for your cultural traditions and um and also your cultural development you know like that's the whole point isn't it is that it dies if there's no one to you know if there's no one to keep it yeah it still pits us together or against each other as well because we're still us and them like uh you know when i was growing up it was us and them it was you either lived on the reserve or you didn't if you didn't live on the reserve you were not part of that community and now as an adult it's it's still us and them because now it's you're either status or you're not and if you're not you're not part of that community yeah Yeah. and politically internally inside the various First Nations, do you all have completely different governance internally? Yes. Uh, some some have, um, they're working on their self-governance. Uh, self, ugh, I can't even speak, self-governance. <laughs> some are farther ahead than, than the rest. And uh, some, like I said, the ones back East are able to make those, uh, those band membership uh, choices, decisions, who can get in, who doesn't things like that. Uh, but for for most of them, it's, uh, it's up to the federal government to decide. So do you have like, a, do, you, do you have a, I know in New Zealand, they have a, um, a sort of a, a department for Maori affairs or, or something like that? Do you do you have something similar in, um, in Canada for the federal and state government or province governments? Government? We have uh, we have an Indian Affairs. Uh, First Nations out here, Indigenous people fall under federal government. So we uh, we fall under the federal government, Indigenous or Indian Affairs. So. Yeah. And do and how how do they interact with um, with you as a as a status uh, tribe tribal clan member? Do do you get to um, um, negotiate? with how things happen or do you just have they just sort of read off the federal laws and say this is what you can do and this is what you can't do it's more a enforcement agency it's uh right now it's more enforcement well even like even with our child welfare like we're we're working on towards uh you know taking back our uh our child welfare and that's a long process just just that one part of it so every part of that we are doing it's it's a fight it's an uphill battle for everything like even our community our community needs to grow 
so that we can build houses on. We have to ask permission to grow that community line, the boundary lines for our community. So we can't just say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna build a subdivision or something here. First of all, we have to ask for money. Then we have to well, first for the far, first part, we have to ask if we can actually move the boundary for the reserve. We have to ask for permission, and that itself takes forever. Then we have to ask if you know for funds to build a house on the on that that new section if they're granted if we're granted that permission. And it's do, it's everything's an uphill battle. Do you guys even I mean, like from a perspective of the lands that you currently have been given as reserves, what sort of proportion of that is of your original um, sort of natural sort of tribal area? Is it is it like two percent or something like that, or is it? That I don't know. There, like, there's. Uh, we have trap lines in traditional territories all over the place, and they, in some cases, they do overlap and stuff. But um, we, you know, we, we don't. Um, before colonialism, we never did the. Uh, that is mine. Yeah. That is yours. Yeah. So. Uh, when when that started, that's when you know the this is my 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 this is where my land starts and this is where it ends. We never did that. You know, yeah, yeah. We 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 walked amongst each other peacefully and we respected when we went into someone else's territory. We would acknowledge them and if we did any hunting on there, we would you know gift them with what's part of what we got. And now it's it's us and them again, like we've been pitted against each other for years and centuries and it's just there's, for decades, uh, forever. Quite, quite a few of the treaties have not been um, sanctified. I don't know if that's the correct word, but the treaty where, where this nation owns this amount of land and I think the Pacific Coast Link, the pipeline, oh. um, where the hereditary chiefs were saying, okay, we're going to stop you till we get this treaty signed and mm -hmm. and saying this is our land. Uh, there's quite a few treaties not. Yeah, we, uh, most of the most of BC is not uh, British Columbia is not treaty. Right. Yeah, most of most of, like I know my, my nation is not treaty. Mm -hmm. uh, a treaty we're in tr treaty negotiations, but we're not treaty. We haven't signed any treaties and a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, communities, indigenous communities out here in BC have not signed them. And uh, what's happening with the pipeline is um, the chiefs that were elected, certain chiefs in that certain areas that were elected signed agreements with the pipeline. What happened was the hereditary chiefs that, you know, that the land that the um, pipelines are gonna go through that was their that's their traditional territory that's where they do their trapping their you know every their livelihoods they were not part of those signings and that's where that conflict is coming from because uh, if like they did not include the hereditary chiefs and so that the hereditary chief stood up and said no we're not uh, allowing this is there a conflict between the elected and the hereditary chiefs all the time because <laughs> what happens is uh, 
you know, like a regular business, because every every community is a business, basically, like their band office is a business, and it's going to be treated as such. What And the reason for that is because of Indian affairs. Mm-hmm. You always had your, land, your Indian agent, and so now we have chief and council, stuff like that. You also have the the land-based people, the traditional hereditary chiefs that, you know, live off the land, that are part of that, that's their land base. They don't, they're not elected, they're hereditary. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, they're not even talked to, they're not even, they're, they're not even in part of the discussions. So the elected officials for the community are the ones that are making the decisions for the community and the traditional territory but the hereditary chiefs are not part of that. So that's where you get your conflict. It seems to me that it's getting uh, more like the elected chiefs or, or, or the generation that comes up is being more like Canadian civilization now or, or European civilization. They're losing their ability to interact with each other. Losing their indigenous or native style society I think is a better term originally becoming more more capitalistic uh, that sort of thing also becoming more patriarchal yeah Uh, we used to be matriarchal and uh, like we had the the women were the ones that uh, ran everything you did have your chief and your warriors and yeah, but uh, since colonialism, we're no longer matriarchal. Mm-hmm. And uh, that in itself has disrupted the, uh, the, the entire circle, uh, the indigenous circle of life. Because, uh, you know, when you had the matriarchs making all the major decisions, and, you know, like, kind of like, I don't know if you can picture that, but you have your circle. In the center of the circle, you have your children and your elders. The next circle is your matriarchs. The next circle is your warriors. And each layer protected what was in the center, which was the future and the past. You have your children, your youth, your babies, but you also had your elders as one unit in the center. So you protected your, your future and your past and so they were very and now we don't have that anymore now now it's it, we're back to us and them where you know i i bring that up a lot because that is something that is very very common it's we're no longer um community-based we're no longer like we're scattered mm-hmm. and you know it's everybody's out for each other instead of you know out for one another because that's what we were told growing up, like protect yourself, get yourself situated. Who cares what anybody else think of yourself? That's right. Well, are there a few a few of the elders um, who still have a memory? I mean, they're, get, they're aging out now. They must be in their 80s and older now. Who have a memory yeah. of what happened and, and teach the children at all? Um, we we like here in this community we do have our cultural uh, advisors and we do bring our elders in and uh, we try to utilize our elders a lot and unfortunately we are losing them at a high rate um but uh, 
we try to use utilize our elders as much as we can to bring back the past and our traditional ways and things like that there are some that were raised that are bringing forward that uh, the traditional ways that are not elders yet mm -hmm. but uh, to the the amount of uh, knowledge that's being lost every time we lose an elder is is immense so yeah it's oh. it's uh it's the real difficult thing because you lose your language and you lose your cultural practice you lose the infrastructure of of the culture which you know like let's face it the um the colonial you know Im imperial british government and the the follow-on the canadian government has been doing that consistently with you since they've touched base i guess the, you could say the french did the same thing in their time and and that's that's been a continuous you know degradation of your your sort of indigenous culture and what what happens is that now you have a a federal system which basically does it but it's perhaps less overtly bad and then it creates that dependency and creates the alienation mm -hmm. and i think that's something that was really interesting when we talked before is that you have you know you, you sort of have these these very personal struggles very um you know for a small band of people i mean i guess i guess your tribes a couple of thousand people a few thousand people and oh, less than you that. Know, like, <laughs> it's even less <laughs> yes. or a few few hundred or a, or a few or a thousand mm -hmm. and and it's like you know that's that's in my culture that's that's an extended family you know that's yeah that's that's you know that's like a very small clan from a very small part of where i come from and um you know the the importance of all that stuff that the residential school systems and lots of the other things you know creating two different bands inside your one band by saying you're you've got status you've got the you've got the stick and you've got nothing you know yeah. that that's just a, a classic you know sort of white supremacist divide and conquer type um, situation which has been done all over the world by the european empires mm -hmm. but you know to see it now and then to say well hey how do you how do you um how do you get that culture back into the center of that family and how do you recreate that family and then how do you grow it um it's it's really difficult because they're not going to give you you know the lands that your people have roamed for uh, i'm guessing thousands of years yeah. um, that's you know that's that's not going to be part of the canadian government's um easy option it's that's a stretch option and yeah and i think you know one of the, one of the real exciting things with indigenous culture in um canada is that maybe not the old culture but definitely the new culture that's that you're starting to see you have a lot of um, first nations people being very active culturally in the modern sense of canadian culture and i think there's a lot more Whereas I guess when your mum was growing up, to be indigenous was a spur for most people looking at at your family. Whereas now it's probably starting to be seen as something of value and something that's that's precious to to your country. So I guess that's that's sort of something I'm interested in. You know how how your kids and how your grandkids are going to um, interact with that. You know. 
Um, I'm trying to with the, when it comes to uh, acknowledging uh, First Nations and, and the impact and, and anything like that, uh, you, you see it in the media. You get the shock value, like when Kamloops uh, 215 came up, you got the shock value, like, oh my God, look what happened. you know. But um, slowly, uh, being Indigenous doesn't sell, doesn't sell subscri subscriptions, it doesn't sell magazines, it doesn't sell um, any kind of media, anything, you know. They'll use it for the shock value at the beginning, but after a little, once that shock value is gone, we're just back to being Indigenous, we're just the token Indian as far as, you know, my, my opinion. And um, so... To see family or indigenous communities trying their best to bring back uh, culture and languages, and that is amazing to see. Like we're seeing a lot of it in Canada and uh, United States as well. That, uh, but we're also still seeing that uh, that oppression portion that we cannot break out of yet we're getting there but we're just not there yet and um you know when things start looking like they're going good it's it really isn't for us like we're, we're just waiting for the other shoe to fall and um because you know like it's like uh, the kid in the candy store you know like the excitement you get in there like oh we're doing this we're doing this and then you get told no Mm. And, that, and that's pretty much what we are with the federal government. It's, you know, like they they do a lot of lip service. They tell us, oh, we're going to do this with you. We're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to do that. When it comes right down to it, you know, like they like the court system, our court system, they, you know, are, we're overpopulated in the, in, the, in the prison system, in the corrections. And they say they're going to do stuff to change it. And they say they're going to work on it we're still waiting and that's part of my job here is to do my best to work with the corrections and the court system to make sure that my members are you know given a fair chance in there do you think an indigenous person is given um, just like in the states uh, given a harder time in the court system compared to let's say European or Caucasian I do yes yeah. as much as uh, the system likes to say that that's not true. The, just the simple fact that we're overpopulated in the prison systems mm -hmm. and corrections tells me otherwise. So it, yeah, it's interesting. We we had a, a guy um, who did a a piece on on policing in America, and he's got a book called The End of Policing. Um, a, a professor called Alex Vitelli in, in New York. And the interesting thing would be to look at a lot of his premises on how the policing system was set up in the US, but it's transferable. Um, and I think if you look at Canadian and imperial policing, um, a lot of it would have been set up to to get the troublemakers off the plant, uh, off the reservations, to put you know put a, a level of um, you know sort of keeping you in the reservation, keeping you 
um, docile as such, because I imagine if it's anything like the American experience, you'd have had, you know, tribes who were doing their own thing until relatively recently, particularly in places like BC and in the in the central sort of plains areas, is that, you know, those, those weren't, weren't heavily settled places from a, a white perspective or a European perspective until, you know, the late 1800s. So a lot of the the actions that would have been done, you know, I, I guess the Royal Mounties are a police force, but they're like more like an armed militia, aren't they, really? But more like the Texas Rangers than the, um, you know, the Bobbies on the beat in London. And it, they're, they're forms of oppression. Do, do, do the federal government even, like, it, I know in New Zealand, and I'm only using that because that's where I was brought up so i have a bit of experience have have they even taken on any customary sort of types of um justice like we do restorative justice in new zealand which comes from a uh you know sort of an indigenous practice of of how to you know rather than just throw someone into jail and um you know sort of punitively do it you know you you know you have situations where people meet their um their victims you you have community based um uh uh solutions rather than just well you know you're a bad person i'll throw you away because you're caught drinking or something like that or you've got a mental issue and you make too much noise so we're going to throw you into prison you know do, do you have any type of interactions from the canadian federal government that addresses the way you know, your indigenous culture addresses um, these issues. Uh, well, I don't know how many people are aware of the uh, the uh, history with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They were uh, they were big in part one of the Paramount um, people to be uh, removing children from re uh, homes for the residential schools. Um, they've actually come a lot come a long way and. Um, they are working towards uh, restorative justice for the most part. Uh, I'm lucky that uh, I work closely with the three members that are here in my community here. Um, and they are excellent. Like they do everything in their power to not have to arrest somebody. They, you know, like they, they take most, a lot of their, their personal time to help with uh, illiteracy, they learn to read, they do men's groups, like they're doing everything they can to build a relationship with us. And so I'm fortunate enough to be working along like with them as part of a team, because uh, I'm in the justice, I'm the justice manager for the community. And so I work w with them, I, I'm, I don't work for the federal government, I work for the band, I don't work with uh, the pol police, I work, we, uh, we're kind of like a team, we do teamwork. Uh, mm. We, um, we complement each other, like they, they do what they need to be doing, I need to do, I do what I need to do. But our end goal is the same is the safety protection of the people as well as that relationship with the people. And uh, so lucky for me, I'm, you know, we have three great members here in community and it could be different. Like there are some members that, you know, are not, you know, as, as great as the ones that we have. But um, like we, we've had previous ones where my mom considers them her children and they still, you know, 
communicate like she you know like she she just loves them and uh so the the relationships are getting better as opposed to what they used to be um because you know back when i was growing up and the, this is personal experience when i was growing up the rcmp was something to be scared of because the only time they came around was when they were taking someone to jail or they were going to beat somebody up that was my experience with the rcmp growing up i was petrified of them scared of them why i started working in criminal justice i don't know <laughs> but it's actually technically just to help to help my people and that's what i'm doing now but um the more i learned about the rcmp the more i seen their changes the more i seen their mandates change where they had to start working with the indigenous people instead of against them and the more i started seeing that even their their mindsets are changing so we've come a long way they've come a long way and um, and i say we've come a long way too because our mindset as indigenous people were we did not want to interact with the rcmp because they were something to be feared they were something to be you know hated just the uniform itself was to be hated i grew up being told that they were bad and so our mindsets have changed too like we're now accepting rcmp detachments in our communities we're working alongside them we're where you know we both have expectations of each other on both sides and we're we're living up to those and so i think that there's a big shift i think and um one of the things i'm doing for my department and for my community is all the restorative justice things that are currently out there that rcmp are doing i'm wanting to bring into community so that we can start utilizing those in the community as well and new zealand actually i really want to go down there and check out what they have for restorative justice because there's a few things down there that i would like to utilize out here <laughs> yeah i should i should connect you with some family down in new zealand who, who are involved in that kind of stuff because it's 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 probably um it's probably similar to what you you're discussing is that as as the um, broader culture has accepted that you know the indigenous people in New Zealand have been mistreated then there's been more pressure I think you know like there's there's different cases around particular areas which I think is an example of what you're talking about with your with your relationship with the uh, the, the Mounties it, I think it's the same in different communities and and uh, and tribes in, in New Zealand, and it'd be great to because I think that's something particularly in the Anglosphere is that you can share a lot of stuff because you're dealing with the same the same system of white supremacy. You know, it's it's exactly the same governments. You know, whether you're in South Africa or you're you know old South Africa, let's say, but yeah. South Africa or Australia, um, New Zealand, uh, Canada. To an extent, the U.S. you have the same types of um, political systems and cultural systems and justice systems, and and it's I think that's a really important thing, you know. Like as much as it, it's it's really important for every First Nation in BC to be talking to one another and sharing and and helping each other, 
uh, and across Canada, it's also really important to, to work with other um, Indigenous groups, particularly in areas where there is that, um, you know, Anglo-colonial, um, you know, sort of government in place, you know, because most of them are, aren't that aren't that sort of reformed, <laughs> I think, New Zealand. Yeah. You know, well, New Zealand's that, maybe uh, a little bit more than Australia. But, uh, I know that Alberta... Alberta has, has uh, adopted uh, bringing the eagle feather into the courtrooms across Alberta, which is significant for Indigenous courts because um, for for us, the eagle feather is, is sacred because that's closest to the Creator. And to, mm. to, you know, rather than swear on the Bible, you know, we, the eagle feather to us is, is more sacred than swearing on the Bible. And so it... it it was great to see that they started doing that in Alberta. So, and you know, there's some some areas, some jurisdictions are coming up with Indigenous court as well. Um, so, those are you, we're coming around, or they're coming around. But uh, and I use I usually say we or me or you know things like that only because I worked I'm work I worked on both sides. I started yeah. my career off on in the judicial system in the big city of Edmonton and now I'm here in small community and uh, so I, I basically I've worked in both both worlds. I worked in the uh, colonial world and now I'm working in the uh, First Nation world so. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. That's the pull of a lot of um, uh, natives, indigenous people is the pull of both worlds, right? What was yes. before and what you have to live in now. Yes. And how do, you, um, how do you come to terms with that, right? Yeah. And for someone like me, because I came back an outsider uh, for all intents and purposes, because I wasn't raised on reserve. I wasn't uh, like I, uh, my mom kept us off reserve as much as she could because she didn't want us to be taken away by the Indian agents and thrown in residential school. She didn't want that for us. So she did not teach us our history. She did not teach us our language. She did not teach us anything um, that has to do with being First Nations. So we were raised, um, and I keep using this word, and I don't mean to make it sound bad, but I, I, we were raised right, white. So, you know, we were, we were not raised Indigenous or anything like that. Um, so any of that learning we we learned as uh, we we started growing up, but when we were kids, we were she did her her best to keep us away from that, uh, for obviously really obvious reasons. Like she was scared that you know we'd be taken away as well. But uh, so when I every time I've come back to the community, I was always the outsider. So when I came back to actually work here there was a lot of people that were like, well, who's that? You know, like you, you, they went and hired another white person. And uh, so, you know, like, even though I've got my, my card saying that I'm a status Indian, I'm still effectively an outsider because I was not raised around. And, you know, and then it wasn't until people started going, oh, that's Julie's daughter, or, you know, then they started going, oh, okay, like, she, like she's a member, okay. But, uh, you know, in some instances, I'm still that outsider because, you know, I go to talk to somebody and they, they're looking at me like, what, what, like, who are you to tell me, you know, whatever, like, 
you don't even you don't belong here and i do i still still get that every now and then but it's i think i'm wearing off on people i'm wearing them down i think (laughs) 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 but uh but yeah so i i lived in both worlds and uh because we did we we did come up here and stay up here for a while but we were outsiders when we were up here and uh but uh I had the I had the luxury of living in both worlds. So, okay, well that's a that's about an hour. Um, it's, it's been great. Sorry, I don't know that. Oh, it's my uh, Alexa. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> let Let me just share with you though. Uh, so this map here, apparently, this is where they found graves of indigenous children in Canada. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, that's, that's that is quite the map, and I believe they're going through the United States right now with uh, with radar or lidar. Yep, in some areas they are. Yeah, I believe areas. the uh, the unmarked grave count in in Canada was over seven thousand now, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. I I could I I remember seeing something about that, and also there was uh, there's a lot of um, this is just outside of Edmonton. I think it's outside Marathorpe, actually Marathorpe, Alberta. Yeah. On the side of the road, they had uh, seven thousand flags, orange mm-hmm. flags. It was quite the scene that I. It was. It was. It was. You could when you drove by it, your heart just sank. It was like because each one of those flags represented a child. So it was, right. it was like it was. Yeah. And especially anybody who's been to Marathorpe, you don't want to go there. So. Yes. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think it was just outside. <laughs> but that, I've, actually, I never, I've actually never been in that community. I've just driven by it. <laughs> so. No, I, I just, they got a baseball team out there, so we used to play against them. Yeah. Um, the thing is, though, these children, so you got parents at home, they've sent their children to residential school. Maybe occasionally they come back for Christmas. One year they just don't come back. And the parents don't know what happened to the children. And I would mm-hmm. think the the uh, Natives Affairs agent said, oh, I don't know. I, I'm assuming they, they wouldn't fess up to what happened to the child because they didn't know, apparently. And um, some of the, uh, the film we've seen, like uh, that movie that you recommended. Um, we Were Children, yes. We Were Children, uh, just yes. a... Um, an awe-inspiring depth of knowledge of what Native children went through. And um, I think that was, it could have been even worse, that was kind of sanitized for, for yes. the video. It was actually worse, worse crimes that happened to these children. Yes. But, you know, you're, you're, as a parent, you don't know what happened to your child. And, and as far as Native culture goes, your family's everything, right? Yeah. Like you said, the children, the elders, uh, yeah, the, for the most part, uh, if a child didn't come back home from school, uh, if you inquired about it, uh, depending on how much you inquired about it, you would be labeled like the troublemaker. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but in, in back in those days as well, you weren't allowed to leave the reserve unless you had permission from the Indian agent. So you couldn't even go check to find out where your child is or what happened to your child unless the Indian agent said you were allowed to go. Because wow. if you left without the permission, you were jailed. Prisoner so, on your own land. Yes. 
And so it's, you know, it was it the time time of the the First Nation uh, lives that uh, you know even asking if your child is okay was was an issue for uh, the Indian agents. Like, and you never got answers. No one ever told you whatever happened to your child. I just actually heard, I think it was about two and a half weeks ago, a mother, this was in our parliament actually, a mother finally after, I don't know, like 50 years, found out where her child was buried. 50 years? Five zero, yep. I believe it was or 40 or 50 years, but it was in Parliament uh, in Canada that it was announced. And uh, the only reason why it was announced is because one of the First Nations senators brought it to the Parliament. So. Well, I, I want to thank you guys. I think it actually warrants a, a further conversation. I, I find this fascinating. And anything we can do to get the message out to uh, Canadians, especially in and North Americans actually uh, about what's happened and I think there has to be some sort of restorative justice that is real and not just Prime Minister saying oh okay we did the truth and reconciliation thing everybody back to business so I think we have to step forward as a country and we have to deal with this uh, the treaties the land everything let's just deal with it and then we can all move on as a nation Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things is is um, we can bring uh, you know uh, Nazi war crimes into court now, mm-hmm. but we can't bring residential school genocide crimes into court. There's there hasn't been any charges brought forward. There's there is nothing, so our voices are still not being heard. I, so. I'm, I'm very impressed with that point. Uh, Diane, I actually am. You're, you're right on the money there. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you, you'd like to say to end this, uh, Ricky, at all? Or are you good? I, I'd just like to thank you, Walter, for giving the platform to uh, to speak about this. And, and thank you to Diane and uh, to her to her family and um, and to her culture for, for existing and, and not having been assumed by this genocide. So... It's a real pleasure to um, to hear your story and to share your story and and hopefully to find um, you know in 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 the Polynesian culture we have this concept which is called whakapapa, which means it's like your lineage but it's it's seen as a as a thread which goes back into your past it's your present and it's your future so. You know, I think um, that's a really important concept for us and something, you know, that I give to your culture is just think about your existence now in that terms because it gives you the the spirit not to not to give up, you know, to keep to keep fighting. So Okay, well thank you. Oh, that's sorry. one thing we do is we do we do fight. We don't uh, we don't give up, so no, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for listening to North of 48. And I'd like to thank Rariki, and I'd like to especially thank Diane. It's an important topic, the residential schools, the sacrifices these families have made, and the sacrifice of these children. Take care.
Till next time. Bye.